What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we got Mark Maxey, and we're talking some old-school Southern California hardcore. Then we're going to open it up. We're going to run them through the gamut and uh, do some segments with them. Super fun episode. I think you're going to like it. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen to it. Also, if you go to the website, 185milesouth.com, there is a playlist for every episode. Uh, There's also all our links for social media, whatever, and smash that Patreon button. The Patreons keep this show alive, but let's get on with the pod. Hundred and eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we are talking hardcore. Helping out, you know me, loving me is Dan Sand. What's up, Dan? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. And also helping out, it is Ben Merlis, a.k.a. Ben Edge, a.k.a. Bedge. What's up, Ben? What's going on? I just want to say Dan Sant is the best dressed man on the pod still to this very day, even though you failed to mention that fact. Yeah, I guess I'm all jumbled in the brain. So, hey, what can you do? All right. Also helping out, first timer, Mark Maxey, Justice League. What's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh we love talking to old school people. We just wanted to do this a little looser this time around. Um, you know, the original intent of the pod was like interview format, but there are so many podcasts right now and most are doing that. So we've kind of moved away from it a little bit, but it's always fun to have new people on and talk about older stuff, but let's just do it in this group setting, dude. I like it. Um, cool. Mark, how do you get into punk and hardcore and like what year would that have been? Um. So it's kind of in two phases. Um, middle school, I guess we're talking like 1980, um, seventh grade. Kind of the highlight of your your life at that point was the middle school dances. It was like you know the social activity where you're actually going out at night and hanging out with your friends. Um, so you know at that time I was typically into all the normal ACDC, Led Zeppelin kind of stuff. Uh, but we started going to these these middle school dances and the DJs that were playing like the B-52s and Devo and Blondie and stuff like that. Um, so not really punk rock, but I we thought it was punk rock at the time. Um, so so that was like the first exposure. And then uh, I went to middle school with this girl named Joy Aoki. Um, she went on to write for Flipside and did a bunch of artwork for Epitaph, stuff like that. Um, and she was already kind of, head first into punk at that time and she tried to loan me like her ramones records and stuff and for whatever reason it didn't totally take so that was that was kind of round one um and then a, a couple years later um a friend i was living in costa mesa with my dad uh, but i had friends at my mom's house in ontario so summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school is 1983 um I'm hanging out with my friend Pat Ellis and he introduces me to these new friends that he's made that are like the punk rockers at his school. Um, And they had this band called diversion and it was basically the original lineup of justice league. It was uh, Ryan Hoffman, Ted Edison, Skip Turner, and John Roa. Um, And they were, you know, 
they were already going to shows and, and whatnot. And uh, they introduced me to bands like Channel Channel Three and Social Distortion and Youth Brigade, Minor Threat. And uh, so I got to be really good friends with those guys. And that was that was kind of where it all started. Right on. Um, so you grew up in Costa Mesa or you bounced back and forth? I kind of bounced around. I went to school. I went to middle school in Walnut, California. And then um, my mom lived in Ontario. And uh, I decided that I wanted to go to high school at my dad's. So I had always lived with my mom up to that point. Um, but I went to high school at my dad's in Costa Mesa. So I bounced back and forth between Ontario and Costa Mesa. My mom's in my dad's house. Okay, so the early shows you started going to were mostly in in what area? Um, all over, because basically I got my license you know the day I turned sixteen, um, and those guys, all, all those all those guys that I mentioned before, none of them really drove yet except for Skip. Um, so I was like their transportation. So we you know we started going to shows at Roxanne's in Arcadia. Um, you know, we're going to the Olympic, we're going to the Cathay de Grand. Um, and then closer to my house in Costa Mesa, there was the concert factory, which used to be Cuckoo's Nest. Um, so that was where I, you know, I started going to shows there, you know, if I could scrounge a couple of friends up in high school, I really didn't have any friends in high school that liked the same music that I did. I was kind of like the only guy into quote unquote, uh, hardcore, I guess there was some like other punker guys, but they were more like, you know, spikes and chains and big, you know, spiky hair. And that wasn't me. So how, how would you compare the scene in the inland empire versus orange County around that, that 83, 84 time period where you're starting to go to shows? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was more into, I was more involved in like the inland empire scene. Um, so once I started, hanging out with those guys then i would basically go out there every weekend when there was a show um because <clears throat> i had my I had my license so we were you know there wasn't really shows in the in the inland empire but there was a lot of parties a lot of backyard parties um and so that was that was the majority of it in that area if you're going to shows you're driving to like i said either roxanne's or the cathay de grand or or the olympic um, or various other, you know, random one-off places where they had shows, Sun Valley after a little while. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about Roxanne's. We haven't heard anyone on the pod describe that place before. So this is a club in Arcadia. What's the cap like, and what kind of shows are coming through? Um, it's a little. It's just a bar. It was Roxanne's bar. That I saw. I saw a lot of good shows there. I saw like uh, MIA would play there a lot. Um, Decry, Unity. Uniform Choice. Um, God, I'm trying to think who else. I, I probably went there at least maybe a half dozen times. Um, that was really the first show, first place we started going to shows. It was really small. It's a little bar, probably held maybe 80 people, packed. Um, if if you would look at the flip side video um, that Justice League is on, that was filmed there at Roxanne's. Oh, right and, on. And then uh, I think uh, I think there's some MIA footage there too. Did you ever see like the pre Dubar uniform choice and did they mean anything at all? Or is this all like new stuff where they're trying to disattach that it went somewhere? I mean, I don't want to say it didn't mean anything because to the, the guys that were in the band, I'm sure it meant something, but I had never heard of them before Dubar was in the band. Um, you know, I'd never, I didn't even know they existed until like 
the internet came around and people all of a sudden there was this pre pre Dubar uniform choice. Um, but you know, I guess there's demos out there and there's a recording. So I guess they did exist. And I, you know, since then I've seen flyers, but you know, I didn't know who they were. I wasn't aware. Um, yeah. your, you know, timeline, your timeline lines up though, that can you talk about uniform choice? Like them kind yeah. of showing up and, and what they meant and like kind yeah. of ascension. Yeah, totally. So, so justice league had started in late 83. Um, and it was actually, uh, uh, Skip, Ted, and Ryan, and then they had another guy named Trevor Raham singing. Um, and they were, you know, they were doing the whole straight edge hardcore thing. They were totally, you know, influenced by, you know, obviously Minor Threat, America's Hardcore, Stalag 13. Those were like the big three. Um, so I, I had, you know, started hanging out with, I was hanging out with them, going to shows and stuff, and just kind of learning what all this straight edge stuff was. I, I won't say that I ever really claimed straight edge. I was, I was kind of a, a shy guy and uh, I needed a beer or two at a party if I was going to talk to a girl. So I was never straight edge, but I was into the whole thing, you know, friends with all those guys. Um, and uh, one time I went to go see the Dickies and plane rap at, at the concert factory in Costa Mesa. And there was this opening band called uniform choice. And I just saw them and I was totally, you know, totally blown away. Um, you know, there was this, this guy with a you know flipped up painter's cap you know basically sounding what i thought minor threat sounded like at the time and they were totally engaging they were just coming up at the time this this would have been probably early 84 um so you know after the show i went up i you know talked to dubar we kind of exchanged numbers became friends you know i was telling him about justice league and he was familiar with with them um i don't know if he had seen them at that point um but yeah, so to me it was like, okay, here's here's the Orange County version of of what I was, you know, involved with with my friends up in the Inland Empire. Yeah, well, I've always wondered this, and maybe there is not a clear answer, but who was the first straight edge band on the West Coast? I mean, not counting I, I should say in California, because not counting seven seconds, like Yeah, America's Hardcore. America's Hardcore. They were a straight edge band, like self-proclaimed. I mean, I mean, as in as much as any band was a straight edge band, then I mean, back then nobody had all straight edge members, right? I mean, you know, even even Minor Threat and SSD didn't have all straight edge members, so you know they were they were labeled a straight edge band. I'm not sure if they were labeled it by themselves or by people around them, but you know, they right. to my knowledge, it was America's Hardcore and Stalag 13. And, and so, same thing was same thing with Stalag 13. Obviously, they weren't all straight edge either. So right around the same time, maybe 83 ish, both those bands form America's Hardcore Stalag 13. Mm-hmm. And then I, just after that, Justice League. And just after that, uh, the, the version of Uniform Choice we all know and love. Right. OK. And then how did you join Justice League? Like uh, you were the bass player when you first joined and then you end up becoming the singer. So walk us through that. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I, I met those guys when I was a soft or summer between sophomore and junior year of high school. Um, you know, they, they quickly became my best friends. So, you know, I'd go see them every single chance I could. I rode it for them. You know, I went on, on road trips, little road trips with them, wherever they went. Um, and kind of by my senior year in high school, um, I was kind of, 
done with living in Costa Mesa. I really wanted to be, you know, with all my friends in, in, in Ontario and Chino, cause that's where, that's where I was every weekend anyway. Um, so I graduated early from high school. I graduated after my first semester of my senior year and I moved up to my mom's in Ontario and it was kind of, kind of a given at that point that I was going to join the band. Um, it was just a matter of, I had to learn how to play bass. Huh. Uh, they had a bass player um, that, you know, he was a nice enough guy, but he wasn't really into the same stuff. He was more into like, you know, GBH and, and uh, all the, all the UK stuff. That was kind of his deal. Um, so he didn't, didn't totally fit with the band. Um, so it was just, just kind of a given that, Hey, learn to play bass and, and you can be in the band. So I got a bass for Christmas in 1984. And uh, really the first songs I ever learned how to play were Justice League songs. Um, so Ryan, yeah, we'd sit in his room and he taught me the songs. And then... And, uh, and you play on the Thinker Sync 7-inch or not? Or not? I, I did not. That was recorded in February of 85. Um, I joined the band in May. So I was in the band long before it ever came out, but I did not play on it. So who's the singer at the point that you join? Uh, John Roa. So he was, it was uh, John and, and Ryan and Skip. And then uh, Ted had left the band. He also played on the seven inch. Uh, he had left the band just before I joined. So my, my first show was at uh, uh, Sun Valley Sportsman's Hall with Subhumans and Scream. Um, kind of daunting first show ever my amazing. first time ever on stage um yeah so that was both that was, amazing bands at that same time yeah that was, that was an interesting night so, so walk, walk us through like ben real the, quick ben real yeah. quick mark can you describe that night you said it's an interesting night and kind of can you explain what that club was like and what the crowd was like what the cap was like just kind of paint the picture of this club in sun valley yeah, Sun Valley Sportsman's Hall. There was tons of shows there. Um, it was it was kind of in a I don't know if you call it a rough area. It didn't it never really bothered us, but but there was the local kind of gang element that went there, um, the local punk rock gang, who I won't name. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, back then there was there was always somebody getting jumped at a show. That was just kind of the thing. There was always you know you had to watch your back. Um, so oh, the club itself, you know, it was, it was just a, like a VFW hall, like a sportsman's hall kind of thing. So it probably held maybe 300, had a big stage. Um, it was a pretty, pretty big room. Golden Voice used to do shows there, maybe three, maybe 400. I'm not sure somewhere in that range. Um, but so, yeah, we played that first show. That was my first time ever on stage. I was super nervous. And then we're watching Scream. I've told this, this story a couple of times, um, but we're, we're watching Scream play and we're right up front against the stage. And these dudes just kept like jumping on our backs, like from behind. And it was just, you know, it was painful. And so apparently I turned around and I looked at somebody wrong. And then next thing I know, um, I'm staring up at this giant dude. And then I get punched and hit from behind by like, next you know I'm, I'm basically getting jumped by like 10 people for really nothing whatsoever i didn't do anything other than maybe look at somebody wrong um scream stops playing skeeter jumps off the stage and uh and ron baird from solid 13 he and skeeter both like pull me out of this you know 
getting punched and kicked by like 10 people. And, uh, ba- you know, for all I know that, you know, they could have saved my life that night. Um, and then the whole, the whole gang is like, you know, saying, Oh, we want the dude who was given hard looks and Skeeter Skeeter from scream said, you want him? You got to go through me. And he basically stood up to the whole, the whole lot of them and they backed down. And then Dubar charged in with a steel chair and took them all out. <laughs> he was not there or I'm sure he would have. So um, you'd already played your set at that point. Yep. So, so they'd then, already somewhat known that you'd probably played the show and they were still like, I, I have no, I, I doubt very seriously. Any of them knew who I was. The, yeah. They I were just there to slam. They were just there to beat somebody up. Yeah. And when you were playing your set, can you remember any of that? Or were you just so like blown away that you're finally on stage in front of this many people and probably excited to see the bands coming up after you? Yeah. I just remember being so nervous and like, you know, thinking that, you know, Oh, I need to have some stage presence and I need to, you know, be, be moving around and jumping around like Ryan does. I got to do that. But I had never like done that before. I'd never practiced it or anything. You know, I just, (laughs) I literally had, had one practice with justice league before I played that show. Um, I had learned all the songs in Ryan's bedroom and then I had one practice with the band and then I played the show. And so I just remember being completely nervous and just trying not to screw up. And I don't think I moved a muscle that whole show. (laughs) I was like a statue. (laughs) Um, That's the way to do it. Yeah. (laughs) How was subhuman? Um, Subhuman. I, I did not see subhumans that night because after getting, basically almost killed um as soon as as soon as that incident ended we grabbed our stuff we loaded up the pickup truck and we bailed that's cool they had already peaked it was 85 they're they're like they're like two they're like two three years past their prime i mean they're still good but yeah that's funny um so so like obviously it's hard for you to compare yourself to others being that you are yourself but but tell us about the differences between because we always talk about the four black flag singers. And now we have an example of another band that had four singers. But like the differences between Trev, Roa and Casey leading up to you singing in the band, like how would you describe those differences? Yeah, I was probably the least charismatic. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I was a singer by default. Um, you know, Kate, we recorded Shattered Dreams with Casey we booked a summer tour. He quit the band literally like three weeks before the tour. Um, so we decided we, we needed to go anyway. So we all divided up the songs. Um, I think, you know, I sang three or four, Ryan sang three or four, Fred sang a couple and skip our drummer even sang one. And that's how we did the summer tour. So we just all split vocals. Um, and then the next summer we were going to go out again and we had just recorded the reach out EP and I did most of the vocals on that. Me, me, Fred and Ryan all did vocals. Um, but I probably did more than the other two. Um, and at that point, I guess, you know, Ryan decided he wanted me to be the front man and put down my bass. So then we, we got another bass player to, to play for that tour. And that and then for that tour, I was just a singer. Um, I did play guitar on a, a few songs as a third guitarist, which was weird. Um, just because Ryan still sang a couple of the songs, but mostly, mostly I was just singing on that tour. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
if, if you want to rank them, <laughs> I mean, may, maybe I, I had a, a, the most singing voice of, of anybody, but um, you know, it certainly wasn't the most standout voice. Um, you know, if, if I have to pick a favorite, it's going to be Casey. I just why, why did you around longer? Why did Trev leave and why did Roa leave? I mean, I knew Ro, I've known Roa a million years, but I never know knew the answer like why why he left uh, Justice League. Um, Trevor, I don't. I wasn't in the band at the time when he left. Um, I was just around on weekends, so I just heard one day that hey, we got John back in the band because because that the band Diversion that I was saying before that was that was like eighty two, I guess into eighty three, and that was that was John Roa um, and, and the rest of justice league. Um, and then when they formed justice league, then they got Trevor to sing instead of John. Um, but at some point, at some point it was decided that Trevor wasn't going to sing anymore. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was a mutual decision or if, or if they, they, they decided to move on, but they got Roa back basically is what that was. Um, yeah. So then, yeah. And then why did John leave? So John, we recorded, or they recorded Think or Sink, and we played a million shows that summer, um, summer of 85. We were, we were going all up and down the West Coast. Um, and then we were writing a bunch of new songs, um, which ended up being Shattered Dreams. And he, I think he just wasn't into those songs as much. He wanted to be more of a hardcore more you know more of the old style of that what justice league was playing um because justice league got a lot of hard like really more kind of minor thready influenced hardcore ssd dys kind of stuff that was before the thinker sync recording um happened um and he was into that stuff and then then when they wrote the thinker sync material that was newer so they wanted to record that for the seven inch and I guess he really liked the older stuff. Um, and then we even moved more in a, a kind of a melodic direction, I guess, with the Shattered Dreams material. So I guess he just wasn't really feeling that anymore. So or, uh, I think it was January of 86. Um, you know, John told us he was he was going to leave. Um, so that's when we recruited Casey. Does the sound soften because the band is always kind of chasing DC? You're doing you're influenced by DC hardcore in the beginning revolution summer happens and you kind of totally follow and chase that. Totally. I mean, that's, that's where, that's where our heads were is, is, you know, rights of spring came out, um, embrace came out and even, even bands like Husker do and squirrel bait. Um, and, and even to a little extent, the replacements, um, we were just, we were way moving in that direction. Um, you know, just, it just got more melodic, more, kind of emo-ish or whatever. Um, yeah, it was it was definitely DC influenced for sure. How did audiences respond to the change in sound? Um, I mean, it wasn't like when Justice League was first going and, and when I first joined the band, there was like a real core group of friends of, you know, 10 or 20 guys who would, who would come to, you know, every show and sing along. And after a while, I think those guys got a little bored of it. So I don't know if it was a change in sound or just just a change in, you know, okay, we've we've done this for a while. And so, yeah, our our local friends weren't coming out as much anymore. Um, we always, for whatever reason, we always got a better reception out of town than we did in town. 
Um, you know, when we traveled to Arizona or San Francisco or, or anything like that, uh, you know, we played a great show in Bakersfield. Um, so, I mean, we, the, the crowds were always good. Um, we kind of made the, the mistake of not playing the stuff on our records. <laughs> we would always play new, mu- new material. So that was, well, that was poorly executed decision on our part. Um, you know, by the time ThinkerSync came out, you know, we were only playing one song off of it. <laughs> yeah, that requires a lot of willpower. Just having been in a bunch of bands myself, like you really want to play. You want to play the, the new songs. Yeah, yeah. The stuff you've been working on. Yeah, yeah I, I struggle with it to this day. I mean, the band I'm in right now, you know, we just we put out an album a year ago and, and everybody wants to move on and play the new stuff. <laughs> like, right. no, we, we got to play that stuff, too. You know? Yeah. So, in reading the Bad Religion book, that was a thing that I really enjoyed about like their outlook on things like they would have like a whole new lp recorded and like wouldn't play a single song off it because like they knew I mean, people didn't know it that's the smart business move for sure you know it's but you know you got to be a little true to yourself too and, and you know make sure you're enjoying yourself up there so it's a balance yeah. it's a balancing act right yes. but, so we you know we always played new songs which probably hurt us because people wouldn't know them um, right. and we did that the whole course of the band I wanted to take a step back uh, real quick. And can you describe like a time you went to the Olympic auditorium and like, take us through it. Like what's a show that motivates you to go there and then where do you park? What does it feel like walking through the doors? Like, what is it like being at a show like this giant? Cause the only time I've ever been to that spot was to watch wrestling. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was massive. Obviously there was probably five or 6,000 people in those shows. Um, I don't remember where we parked. There was, you know, wherever was free. I don't know. Cause we never had any money. Um, it was all we could do to afford the eight bucks or whatever to get in. Um, so we, you know, we'd find somewhere to park and you'd walk and there'd always be a million people hanging out outside, you know, drinking or whatever. And, you know, bumming, bumming change off of you to try to get in. Um, so you're always walking through the walking through a ton of people to try to get in the show. Um, it was just, it was weird. And then you'd get in there and it was just super dark and just like this big cavernous place. And I don't remember ever being there for a show that wasn't well attended. It was always packed. Um, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, there would be, you know, two or three pits would open up <laughs> um, you know, and then, you know, if you needed a break, you went out and sat and, you know, there was seats all around because it was a giant wrestling auditorium and the stage was huge and the stage was, you know, high. It was probably like four or five feet. Um, I was never much of a stage diver myself. It always scared me. I didn't want to die. <laughs> so I didn't do that. But a lot of people I knew, you know, were always, always hopping up there and, and diving off. What, was there a barrier? Would you have to get over the barrier to be able to stage dive or was there no, no, there was no barriers back then. There was, that was pre pre barrier days. Um, you just got up on stage and that, you know, they never had a ton of security. I mean, if you, if you see the old videos you can see there's, you know, there'll be 20, 30, 40 people on stage with the band at any given time. That was, you know, that was cool. It was fun. It was a participation sport, but it also kind of sucked when you were trying to actually watch the band. Cause half the time you couldn't even see them because <laughs> they were just behind all these, you know, slam dancers on stage. Right. So going back to the thing about you growing up both in Orange County and the Inland Empire, what I've heard, and maybe this is kind of blown out of proportion, 
that there was a rivalry between those two scenes, like maybe sometime in the late eighties. Do you remember that? Um, I mean, if, yeah, not really. Okay. I, I kind of checked out at about 88 um, after justice league ended. That was, you know, I, I was moving on to like a lot more melodic kind of stuff. Uh, not really going to many hardcore shows anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it was late eighties, yeah, I probably wasn't really there for it. Okay. You know, I, I still went to go, you know, I'd go see chain of strength when they play, but that was about it. Yeah. And chain and chain kind of forms out of justice league, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So justice league, we, we uh, did a summer tour with seven seconds in 87. Uh, we were on the road with them for seven weeks. Um, you know, playing massive shows every night. Great, incredible shows. Um, Kevin was was going to put out our record on on Positive Force, uh, so they you know he offered to take us out on tour, and we did that tour. And the record was delayed. It was supposed to be out you know right at the beginning of the tour, and it ended up not coming out until October, and the tour ended in August. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of a bummer. And then our guitar player, Fred Mantarabi, he quit right before the tour. Um, seems to be a, a common thing with us. So we scrambled and got this, this kid, Matt Baker, to, to fill in on guitar. And it was fun because he, he had blonde hair and we told everybody he was Brian Baker's little brother. And everybody believed us. <laughs> so that was, that was our running gag for the whole summer. Um, but yeah, so we got home and you know, Matt was never going to be in the band permanently because he was going to college in Boston. He was going to Berkeley School of Music. Uh, so we didn't have a, a lead guitar player and I was kind of the singer slash rhythm guitar player, but Ryan was also a rhythm guitar player and neither of us could play any of the, the lead stuff on any of the records. Um, so we, we didn't have, you know, we were down a member and after, I don't know, just after the tour, we practiced once and it was just kind of lackluster. And then we just kind of, kind of fizzled. Um, you know, we never really said, Hey, we're breaking up. We just, we just stopped. Um, so that was, you know, our, our last kind of official practice was, I think sometime around maybe October of 87. Um, we did one, one more practice and it just didn't go anywhere. Um, then, then I guess January or February of 88, you know, Ryan calls me up and says, Hey, we, we got the show at Fender's opening up for seven seconds and uniform choice and eat the today. I'm like, cool, let's do it. And he said, he's like, yeah, I want you to play bass. He said, I got John Rowe to sing again. And to me, that just, that didn't sit well. Um, you know, it was like, I was being replaced. Uh, so I just, I decided not to do that show. And so that was kind of like a semi reunion lineup, I guess, with, with row on vocals. Um, and then they played that show. And I, if I remember correctly, or I don't really know for sure, but I think chain of strength already existed at that point. And they were really just trying to, to bring justice league full circle and be a hardcore band again. Cause that show, they didn't play anything off of uh reach out. They maybe played one song off of Shattered Dreams and everything else was just early, early Justice material, which was way more hardcore. Um, so I think that was kind of like a, 
all right, let's bring this full circle. Justice League is a, is a hardcore band. And then we can start the chain of strength and it'll be, you know, it'll be off on that foot. Can you tell okay. us about Mind Power Records? Um, yeah, so Mind, Mind Power was basically, so right after, after Justice League died, um, I started another band uh, with my friend Pat Ellis um, and with John McEwen, who had played bass, who basically took my place on bass in Justice League. Um, so I started a band called Pollen Art. And that was, it was really kind of an extension of, like if Justice League had done another album after Reach Out, it would have sounded like that. Um, we had another drummer at first and then he left. And so we got Chris Bratton to play drums on that record. And he played a few shows with us. Um, so, you know, I was, I was looking around trying to get a label to put it out and just decided to do it myself. So that's, that's what Mind Power Records was, was really just to put out that record. And then I ended up doing a few more records for a couple other bands. Okay. Yeah. Including, right. The chain, the chain seven inch that comes out on three different labels. Right. That was, you know, I didn't put that record out obviously. Um, Cause I mean, if you have a copy of that, it says foundation right on the label. <laughs> um, that was just Ryan chain had chain. I think had broken up by that point. And Ryan had a thousand seven inches sitting in his living room with no covers. And he said, Hey, do you want these? <laughs> and I said, sure. Um, so he said, all right, well, you sell them and we'll split the money. So basically I took all those seven inches from him. I just went down to the copy shop and made some Xerox covers and, and, you know, I, I modified it to like a halfback thing rather than a full, a full cover. Cause that was what I had done on the seven inch prior or no, that was, no, I guess that was the first one I did. Basically I just did it. Cause I, I, I was going to pay for uh, eight and a half by 11 paper instead of eight and a half by 14 paper. <laughs> So, oh, right. Big money. So, yeah. So that's all it was. That's all it was. And, and the reason there's gold covers and blue covers is because the copy shop ran out of gold. That's, so. that's funny. That's how like a lot of collectible records, there's not, there's very little uh, planning involved. Like no, it's just like it, coincidentally, this is what happened. And now it's worth however, a hundred bucks or whatever, because exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I believe me, I wish I still had some of those. I have one copy of it on gold. <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have right. a blue one, which is the more rare one and worth more money these days. So tell us about uh, Killing Flame. You were in that band for a minute. Um, what was what was being in a band with Joe Jody Foster like? Um, so yeah, I actually I was only in the band with Foster for a literal minute. Um, so, uh, 2003, um, Casey Jones tells me, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this band with, uh, with Gavin and Joe Nelson. It's like, we need a bass player. Do you want to play? I'm like, hell yeah, sure. That'll be fun. Um, and we had, they had gotten this other guy named Chris Judd to play guitar. Uh, so that was, you know, the, the first EP, or that first seven inch and the first EP and then the another breath EP were already out. And the band had basically broken up for a while. Joe Nelson moved to Chicago for a while. Um, so I guess when he came back, that's when, when it restarted. Um, so, you know, Joe and Gavin were basically restarting the band. Um, and uh, Foster wasn't involved at that point. 
So uh, yeah, Casey asked me if I wanted to join. So we wrote a new album. The whole the whole basis of doing doing that band is we had an offer to do a record uh, with a label called Highlight Sounds in Brazil. Um, He was going to put out our record and then uh, bring us down there to tour. So um, that was that was the whole goal was just to do that record and do that tour. Um, so we, we did, we, we put out a record, uh, it's called nine more lives. And then we, f- we flew down to Brazil and toured down there for two and a half weeks. Um, we played a bunch of shows with this Brazilian band called dead fish, which if you've, if you've never heard them, I highly recommend you check them out. Um, super, super cool dude, super good band. And then we actually played a couple of shows with the Lemonheads and All Systems Go, which was another experience unto itself. Um, In your opinion, what is the best Joe Foster band? My opinion, I mean, I like I like the Ignite stuff for sure. Uh, yeah. I was never really into Speak because I'm not a big fan of Daniel Mahoney's vocals. Um, but yeah, I probably Ignite. I mean, Unity was fun. I saw Unity a bunch of times um, pre pre Dubar when a guy named Rob Lynch was singing. They used to play at that club Roxanne's all the time. So you know, I knew I knew Joe, but not really well. We were more just acquaintances at the time. Um, anyway, so after that Brazilian tour, then Foster did rejoin the band for a couple of months because um, our our other guitar player Chris had moved away. Um, so we, you know, we did, we practiced probably a half dozen times with, with Foster. Um, he played one show with us. Yeah. One show we played, we opened up for instead at the showcase, um, and Foster played guitar at that show. And that was actually interesting because Casey, uh, had broken his hand <laughs> like maybe a week or two before the show. He broke uh, both his hands on a rope swing. Yes. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> you were there. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. So we thought we were going to have to cancel. Um, I asked Bratton to do the show. He said, no, I don't play drums anymore. Um, but he said, let me ask Alex for you. So then um, Alex Barreto ended up playing drums for us that show um, with Casey sitting next to him, giving him drum cues. <laughs> Cause Amazing. he only practiced with us once, I think. Uh, so that, you know, that was a fun show. Um, that was, that was the only show I ever played with Foster. And then, uh, after that Foster left again and killing flame was just a four piece. And then we wrote another album, um, recorded it. And then that didn't come out for like three years later. And that was kind of the end of that. Cause, um, I moved to Texas and the band just kind of went away at that point. Well, cool. Tell us about uh, your current stuff, Sloth Fist and also Quiet Panic, and then we'll wrap up the uh, yeah, cool. discussion part of this. Um, you know, Sloth Fist, is, it's, it's a fun band. Um, there's a lot of humor involved in, in the songs, but it's really good music. Um, it's really good. Uh, it's kind of, we call it punk rock and roll, I guess, because there's, there's a definite you know, hard rock influence. Um, I like to think of it as kind of a motorhead meets descendants. If that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, there's, there's poppy elements and there's, there's kind of hard rock elements to it. Um, but it's, it's fun stuff. It's we're based here in Dallas. Uh, we 
you know, before the pandemic, we were playing a ton of shows. We did an album called Mothman is Real. Um, so I relaunched Mind Power Records to put that out. Um, and, you know, we're, we're starting to play shows again. It's cool. We have a, there's a club here in Dallas called Three Links, which is kind of like, a, I guess, our version of, of CBGB's. It's just, it's, it's the, the fun place to go in Dallas for, for shows. Um, we play there a lot. Um, so we're actually playing a show there this Friday. Um, oh, can't date it because it, it yep. will have already happened. That show was killer. Happened. It was. Yeah, we were all there. We were in the pit. Yeah. Veg did a stage dive. It was ill. Yeah. And then uh, A Quiet Panic is, is a label that um, Ryan Hoffman started. Uh, he asked me you know, if I wanted to be involved with, it, with him. Um, so he and, he and I and uh, this guy named Mike Messina are the three owners. Um, we also do artist management. So Mike kind of handles that. And then Ryan is kind of A&R for the label. And then I pretty much do everything else as far as the business side of things, um, you know, getting the records produced, paying all the bills, doing all the accounting, all that. So that's my, that's my 40 hour a week, non-paying job. In addition to my 40 hour a week paying job. Wasn't well, Mike, that, Mike wasn't that manager, what's that? Wasn't that a hair dye that they used to sell at uh Manic Panic. Manic Panic. Oh my bad. Uh, Mike quite, manages the mighty take offense. He does. Oh. Well, right well, on. Well, Quiet it. Panic is actually a, a reference to a it's chain a, of chain of strength song. Yeah, it's a chain of strength lyric. Yeah. Uh hurts oh, to ask. School, school me there. I'm the mall punk. <laughs> but uh all right, that's, right. that's buying that bootleg hair dye and not even getting the manic panic from hot topic that's right <laughs> I, I didn't realize it was a chain of strength reference for a while either i thought it was some reference to a smith song or something all right one's gotta go and we're going way back early discord and uh but they put out these four seven inches on a 12 inch, which is the format I know and love. We are doing One's Gotta Go. It's the Teen Idols Minor Disturbance seven inch. The SOA No Policy seven inch. Government Issue Legless Bowl seven inch. Or Youth Brigade The Possible seven inch. Dan, let's go to you first. All right. So all of these are really good. <laughs> Does that need to be said? Probably not. Um, but there might be some people out there who've never like gone this far back, perhaps. But they're all really worth checking out. Obviously, you can get it all on the Discord. Uh, the Discord 12-inch um, that allows you to dabble in all of it. Now, one singer sings for two of the bands on here, and he does a hell of a job. <laughs> uh, Nathan Stressich, I think. I'm really bad at pronouncing... Uh, last names that have strange consonants in the middle of them um, that, you know, kind of that Eastern European spelling, but um, I love his vocals. I love the teen idols. Uh, I really love the funny part on the deadhead song where they actually drop into the grateful dead song and then flip the lyrics on it. I, I've always loved that. The only then, good deadhead is one that's dead. Yeah. <laughs> But the the riding that train, huh? and then they just eviscerate them after it. Um, super Dude, that cool. Part, that part sucks. I love it. I love I, it too. I it. I it's funny. It. I hate it for like that early like first wave hardcore. Like we're already being silly. Like come on. 
just no, it's it comes it comes out of silliness though it's like the hu- the sense of humor hasn't been erased from it yet right, right. they're transitioning from the silly I, okay that's fair that's a good argument ben yeah, it's Sorry, a man. it's a middle stage it's a transitional step between punk and hardcore okay i'll stop <laughs> it's like 1.7 or something ben, uh dan go ahead sorry they also have a song about sneakers which a sneakers are part of my entire DNA, but also I love the fact that it's like rallying against probably people that were maybe 19 or 20 in the scene that were that they viewed as trying to grow up too fast and like put on your sneakers and be a fucking kid. I love it. Uh, the government issue. I love this record too. Um, stabs vocals. So cool. Um, I mean, and that band has had so many like DC luminaries like go through its uh, thing. That doesn't necessarily mean on this recording, but um, I really love it. So I'm keeping Teen Idols. I'm keeping Government Issue, and then I'm keeping my favorite one out of these four, which is the Youth Brigade Seven Inch. It is so raw. It is so hard. It is like part. You know, UK punk part, American hardcore part, slight little elements of, you know, what would go on to be, like, it's just, it sounds so good. And I love that, you know, it's called the Possible EP because apparently that was a a diss on Ian um, saying that, well, it's possible we might put out your EP on Discord and you know, it was kind of like a bit of a like, well, fuck you. Like we helped build Discord by being in Teen Idols, you know. Um, but I'm keeping that. And even though the SOA 7-inch is a complete ripper, I'm keeping these three and I'm letting SOA uh, float away down the stream, go down the uh, to the sewer. Um, um, that's the one that's got to go. I do love it and, you know, but if I'm going what I listen to more, it's the other three. If I'm going which vocals I like the most, it's the other three. Um, that's that's where I stand. SOA has got to go. Floating down the Potomac, one would say. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mark, let's go to you. Um, so Teen Idols, I, I really like that record. Um, fun fact, I actually found a copy of it for 25 cents in a used record store in Costa Mesa. I hate you. <laughs> what, what year though, Mark? Come on. Uh, probably 1984. Yeah, fair. Um, only problem was it didn't have a cover. It was just this record in the white sleeve. Um, I so, don't hate you anymore. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't worth all that much at the time, but uh, I actually uh, traded it to John Rowe for something, and then he actually flipped it to Pat Dubar. So fun fact there. Nice lineage. Uh, but uh, yeah. Well, was the record broken when he gave it to Pat Dubar the way he gave me the Judge uh, um, <laughs> uh, New York Crew record on Schism and it was fucking broken? No, not that okay. I know of. But he did make a copy. He found somebody who had one and he made a photocopy of the cover and he gave it to Dubar. And I'm not sure if he told Dubar that it was a photocopy. I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to ask him. Um, so I love that record. I, again, I like the song Deadhead. I like Get Up and Go um soa i really like that record i've i've always um you know always like that record especially public defender um you know that song is definitely still relevant today um and then government issue is is one of my favorite bands of all time i would i would definitely not say this is their best record 
um, I'm much more partial to say Joyride or Boycott Stab, um, but this is it's still a fun record. You know, asshole, bored to death. Um, you know, no rights, great songs. John Stab was a super cool guy. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I was good friends with him, but we were we were on friendly terms for sure. Uh, he did me a solid once. Uh, I had a friend driving from Dallas to Houston to go see one of the GI reunion shows. And uh, he was afraid he was going to drive down there and it was be sold out. So I hit up Stab and said, hey, can you get my buddy on the list uh, just in case? And he's like, yeah, no problem. So, you know, good guy all around. Um, the only one of these that I was not super familiar with and never owned and never had on, on cassette or anything was um, the Youth Brigade. It always confused me that there was a Youth Brigade from D.C. when I loved Youth Brigade from L.A. Um, so that one I wasn't familiar with. I actually did listen to it a few times. You know, I probably, I probably heard it back in the day, but I don't remember it. And, uh, I listened to it a couple times in prepping for this. Um, it's, it's great, but you know, the other ones mean a lot more to me. So I'm going to let the youth brigade go. Yeah. Sentimental value. Uh, the SOA is a ripper in the way that the songs are all so short. And I think really catchy. Like this seven inch just bangs and is a perfect early eighties hardcore seven inch. The government issue seven inch might rage even harder. Like in a way that like, I don't know, like that early gang green rages and such just a, like, it's like unbridled rage. It's, it's so weird juxtaposing the SOA versus the government issue because they're both so furious, but in different ways. And it's really hard to break it down. I, I love them both. I can't lose either of these. These are my two favorites of them. The Youth Brigade, I think, has the best song out of all four of these seven inches, which is the It's About Time That We Had a Change. Good so, God. Perfect song, so. you know? And then uh, the Teen Idols, that song Fleeting Fury is perfect. I love, like, the teaser intro. You know, like, you think it's going to be, like, a like kind of a long, drawn-out intro, like which is kind of typical for that stuff, and then go fast, but it's just, like, an intro for like 10 seconds and then starts raging that song rips but if i had to choose i'm losing the teen idols i'm losing every uh ian band except for minor threat what's up and uh ben let's go to you all right um teen idols i love the song sneakers is classic and i think i've listened to it so much on spotify that anytime i listen to another um another song or record from that era and the record ends Spotify automatically kicks me to that song. And instead of being pissed off, I'm like, yep, good. I want to hear this song again. (laughs) So (laughs) way to go algorithm. You got it right. Um, And then SOA, I just love how it starts with lost in space. It's just like, this might be the first like, truly like hateful straight edge song in in a good way <laughs> just like f- like fuck on drugs um i i love the anger um in henry garfield's voice and um what's funny is like the entire b-side is about fighting war zone riot gang fight public defender gonna have to fight so that's kind of neat it's almost like a it, it's almost like a hardcore concept record in the shape of a seven inch. And then when you get to legless bull, like government issue, like Mark said, I mean, I agree with him. It is what they are one of my favorite bands of all time too, but this is 
long before they've developed into the band that they would one day be. In fact, they they always evolved. Every record is is going is pushing in another direction. And I think this might actually be their least best record that they've ever made. And it's still great. So uh, and they and they made a lot of records. So and then when we get to Youth Brigade, just like Zach said, it's about time that we had a change is so good. And the lyrics are so fucking pissed off in a correct way. It's like, man, this guy nailed exactly how I feel about everything in one in three verses. And my old band used to cover this song. And it, and I was like, it was one of those songs you're just happy to cover. Like I get to be on stage and sing this song. Awesome. Um, the rest of that seven inch, nothing is nearly as good as that one song, but that one song is so good. I'm going to have to keep it. So I think government issue is my, is my one that's got to go. That's wild. I think that asshole of all these is the second best song behind. It's about time that we had a change. It's so like you can just see that they're a special band and they're going to be wild. You know, like it's like a mid tempo rager that, there's just so much in there with like the bass and everything. I don't know. It's epic. I really think government issue came into their own on the next record with when Brad Baker came in on guitar and, you know, teenager in a box to me, that's, that's the, the ultimate government issue song. Yeah. But here's the thing is like, we know how, you know, some of these bands or even some of these members progress, blah, blah, blah. But when you're putting the, just the four records period up against each other, you kind of almost shouldn't like go, well, I know GI is better later. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like, do you like the GI better than the SOA or not? You know, that's fair. But also this is a great one because I think each one got picked, which proves that these four are bangers because I lost teen idols. Dan, you lost SOA. Ben, you lost government issue and Mark, you lost youth read. Yep. So it's a motherfucking wow. What's up? <laughs> That's great. That's that never happened. And that might not ever happen again. Yeah. We'll do a post this week, everyone. So uh, you guys can decide which one's got to go and you can decide which one of us is wrong. What's up with that? And you can order that box, that seven inch box set. Oh, wait, no, you can't because you already ordered it along <laughs> yeah. with along with twenty four thousand ninety nine hundred ninety nine other people. I actually don't know how many are getting are getting pressed i uh, wonder how many they sold of that ben prolonging the segment with uh non-facts what's up the fight lasts for hours each ram battering the other dozens of times Head to head. All right, we are going head to head. We're doing the Blast Power of Expression LP versus Black Flag My War. And I don't have them pulled up, so I couldn't tell you the years, but I think Power of Expression is 86, My War 84, maybe. My but anyway, 84 for sure. Right on. And uh, yeah, well, Mark, kick it off. Um, Okay, so God, this is this one's hard. <laughs> this one's really hard. Um, I love loved Blast. I used to see them all the time. I mean, I probably saw Blast 
15 times in between 84 and 86. They were just always playing LA. Um, and we played a show with them in uh, Long Beach at Melody Dance Center. Uh, Justice League even wrote a song that was the song Down Again was Ryan's quote unquote, this song sounds like blast. <laughs> that, was, that was the intent of that song. Um, it's a great band, but for whatever reason, I never owned that record. I, I just never bought it. Um, you know, I obviously had very limited funds back then. So you had to be very selective about what you bought. So a lot of stuff I just had taped from friends and I don't think I ever even got a tape of that, that record. I just, I saw them a million times. I loved them to death every time I saw them, but I never owned the record. And I've probably listened to that record more in the last three years than I did in the 30 years prior to that. Um, and that being said, I mean, it, some of that sounds so much like black flag. It's not even funny. Um, anyway. Um, so I'm going to go my war just because I had that um, had it on. That was one of the first CDs I ever bought probably in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, and I probably had it on cassette before that um, just based on mostly on the songs, my word can't decide. I, I love those, those two songs. And I can even, I can even get with some aside too. Uh, nothing left inside is a cool song and uh i forget what the name of the other one was that um there's one song that's basically just got like three notes and that was one of the earliest songs i learned to play on bass just because it was so simple <laughs> so that rules i'm going my war all right right on yeah we did this whole record on a side a side b episode so everyone hit those archives and hear the full breakdown of black flag my war but uh ben let's go to you head to head this is a tough one um I, I I can't decide. I'm beating my head against the wall and I um I'm looking into myself to try to figure out which one I like better. And would it's fucking say, with would you say yeah, okay. It, <laughs> you beat me to it. I was it's, fuck, it's fucking with my head and now it's time to think. Right. Um well here's our my explanation. Uh the thing is Blast is a very, very good band. They are clearly trying to be Black Flag and don't come at me with anything else. You fucking know it's true. And on principle, you got to go with the OG, the 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 originators of the sound, um, which is Black Flag. But what makes this difficult is if you go back and listen to the side A, side B, my war episode, I talk about how side B does not work. It's Black Flag trying to be slow and heavy which I totally agree with the idea of a, you know, hardcore punk band going slow and heavy kind of as a, as a way of kind of uh, subverting the expectations of a band it, that's playing in a fast genre of music, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't come off that good. It's not that good. Uh, so, and I love, I don't need to by blast and I heard a rumor, which we figured out that is not true at all, that Pat Dubar said, if you want to be on Wishing Well Records, you got to make an anti-drug song, which not true. Uh, we figured that out on this podcast. If you yeah. go back. Yeah, yeah. According, according to Pat Longry, but uh, Dubar could say different. We'll find out one day, huh? Hopefully. Um, but I don't need to, as far as a song with an anti-drug message, and just a song in general, 
it's so good. And and when they got back together in the 2000s, they did not uh, they cut that song out of their set. It just seemed well, I don't know why they cut it out of their set. I can only speculate. But that was kind of a bummer to me because I love that song. And then after it's over, they crack open beers and they go, fuck that song, man. You can actually hear them do that on the record. Uh, But that does not uh, take away from the power of that song. But I still, on principle, have to go with the OG. And like Mark, my war and can't decide are the highlights of the record. So my war is my answer. My war and can't decide are so good, but... If Black Flag put out The Power of Expression, there would be people arguing that it was the best Black Flag record. It is so good. It's I, so wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, it's amazing. It's so, I don't know. It's like they mash up like the later Black Flag stuff and even like how they're sounding on My War and mix it with like that early Fury. It is so good. Just everything about it. I love it. It's one of my favorite records of all time. I'm power of expression all day. And uh, Dan, let's go to you. Um, all right. Well, so people may have been mad at Ben a second for maybe a couple of those statements, but I think they might be more mad at me. I don't really care for either of these bands that much, to be honest. Um, especially this era. I mean, I, I love, you know, nervous breakdown, like, it is one of the absolute pieces of hardcore DNA that I need to exist. But when Black Flag start entering this world, you know, this record alienated a ton of their early fan base and also some of their later fan base um, when they, you know, start discovering this stuff. So it, it doesn't do much for me other than having uh, my favorite, Black Flag member Dale Nixon playing on the band. <laughs> no, I just it. Both of these just don't do too much for me. So um, the song "My War," I agree, is the absolute standout uh, on the "My War" LP, and I like that song um, a lot. But for the most part, this this driving sound that these two bands are. I like it. I like that kind of driving sound probably found elsewhere in other styles. Uh, I um, have some blast records and I have some, you know, a ton of black flag stuff, but it, I never come back to this stuff that much. It just, it just doesn't uh, speak to me as much. And for this being a head to head, it, it's, I mean, it's like Ben said, when one band is referencing the other, um, I think the OG just wins. Also, um, Rollins's vocals, while sometimes actually irritate, they're always doing something interesting and, and trying to tackle the song in a way that is stepping into a new realm when dealing with this kind of stuff, which I, I definitely give a nod to the, the progression that is being attempted with the songwriting and with the lyrical content and the um, vocal performances trying to 
almost nail something different, especially something brand new around the time. So I'm going Black Flag My War. All right, and uh, let's go to Stu. I just think VD rules, dude. Oh, okay. Well, right on. Uh, so this is three to one. I lose again. What's up with that? That's fucked up. Because uh, Power of Expression is so good. And Daniel, I don't appreciate your views at all, man. I know. I know no one does. I. It was so funny, like, getting ready for this pod, and I was like, I haven't listened to these in ages. And, I, like, maybe these will have grown on me a lot more. And then I listened to them. I'm like, nah. No, they haven't. <laughs> well, what's more, dri- the, you said you like other more uh, driving uh, type of music. What would be examples of the stuff you like? Um, in regards to it's it's probably a a lot more modern um, stuff that's kind of like this. Uh, it this kind of sound, and I I came to blast much later on in you know when people were referring to him as being such a ledge band you know um and i you know listened to it quite a bit and it just it never grabbed me to the point where it everybody else especially californian people were like so crazy about it i suppose the one I like the best is it's in my blood, you know? Um, I, think, I think if you saw them live in 1985, you might think otherwise just because they were like so powerful. Yeah. That, were- that's, that, I think that's the point is that that's part of what their legacy is written on being like just destroying rooms with the sheer power of expression, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but I, I saw them what, like four or five years ago when they played a show um, up here in San Francisco. And I, you know, it, it was cool, but people there were losing their minds because they were seeing blast, you know, and I was, I just couldn't tap into it. And I, I, I almost feel bad for it, you know, like that it just doesn't speak to me, but it just, it just doesn't. You know, that's cool. There's a lot of stuff that everyone else loves that doesn't speak to me. So I totally relate. No, it ain't cool. We've uh, <laughs> loaded up our socks with uh, bar soap and we'll see you around 2 a.m., Dan. <laughs> you got to get through Reggie first. <laughs> All right. The day before Uniform Choice records screaming for change pat dubar is abducted by a ufo everything's been written but someone's got to fill in and you could time warp in someone from any uh era of music to replace him ben who are you choosing this one i thought okay ian mckay is like the obvious answer because uniform choice is very much crafted in the image of minor threat and I thought, like, that's so obvious that by picking Ian Mackay, it would it feels like cheating. So I had to think harder. I had to come up with someone. And I think I got a good one. Chris Jones from Verbal Assault. Because, um, you know, 
verbal assault is sort of in a in a sense crafted in the image of minor threat um and at least on in the early early days and and pat likes holding syllables for really long periods of time and so does chris if you listen to the song trial he's holding he's holding one syllable for like 20 seconds ah! it's like how do you even do that circular breathing um so he can he totally could pull off uh, what needs to be done to make this vocal performance work. And I mean, it's gotta be someone who projects confidence and purpose. And uh, he's definitely got that going for him as well. So um, I think if you got, if you got the verbal assault guy singing on this record, it would be either almost as good or as good as the Pat Dubar. Uh, version we all know and love. I love it. I think it's a great choice. Dan, let's go to you. All right. So I've got I've got two answers and they're both completely off the wall and maybe a bit bit questionable, but these are two records that I want to hear. First, selfishly, this is my favorite this is my favorite hardcore straight edge 12 inch LP, uh, this and Life Love Regret probably tied. Um, and I am gonna say that I would love to sing this record because it's my favorite and I do sing it almost every day, but that's not my real choice. The problem is, you show up to the studio and Cliff from Blast is in the door and he already got the invite. You got to get through him. Well, <laughs> He, he's also, if he's just listened to this left, uh, episode, he's also going to smash me for not giving due respect. Um, the other answer that I just want to hear one of my favorite singers of a, of a different vibe, but can also do really cool singy uh, vocals, but in a very, very different manner is... I want to hear this record with Ben Cook from No Warning singing these songs in that total like nothing means nothing. Like I, I want to hear that like guttural, well not guttural, uh, more like kind of in the gutter version of um, Screaming for Change because you know, why would I want to pick someone that's going to do it exactly or close to the thing? Because then I can just, you know, see how this is. But I want to hear it with a fully different take and I want it to be something like mega interesting uh, for me to listen to. So I'm choosing Ben Cook of No Warning. What about young Gov era Ben Cook doing this album? So it's all sung in a super falsetto nasally <laughs> voice like uh fucking excuses it's all the same <laughs> he could maybe do it on straight and alert but then you know for something like no thanks i want it to be straight up ill blood ben cook he could dual track it like bad religion uh yeah. mark let's go to you yeah, this this record for whatever reason it totally bummed me out when it came out because I'll be that guy. I, I, I like the demo. I had the, you know, Pat Dubar drove to my house and gave me a copy of their demo. <laughs> um, so I listened to that thing a billion times. Um, 
And so I was stoked when they were putting the new record out, but it took so long to come out. We were waiting for that record for literally two years. And then it comes out and it, I read all the titles and there's like all these new songs. And then I hear it and they're not new songs. It's the same songs from the demo, but all the names are changed <laughs> and the words are slightly different. So I just, you know, I had those versions in my head. And, and when I'm listening to the new version, you know, the words are wrong. It just, you know, it just bummed me out for whatever reason. And, and, you know, obviously they took it seriously. A demo is a demo. It's meant to, you know, get the songs ready for your album. Right. So they did that and they changed them and presumably made them better. But to me, I just, it was always weird to me that the songs changed and they were different. Um, anyway, to answer the actual question, I was, I have two people in mind the first, but so I'm not choosing John Bunch from Senchfield, but I think that would be a really cool thing to hear. Um, just cause you know, it would be kind of reason to believe ish, you know, he's, he's got that super great melodic voice and to hear those songs with that take would be very interesting to me. Um, but I'm not picking him. I'm picking Zoli from Ignite because basically he's got the range and he's got the, the similar style. And, and you're basically, you know, call on my brothers is uniform choice with Zoli on vocals, right? Vocals. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's, that would be the perfect fit because Zoli can sing like Dubar was trying to sing on that record. Um, he's just got the range. He can hit all the notes. You know, he does, his voice isn't going to crack in all those places where Dubar's voice cracks. Um, so yeah that's my choice well what when you went from loving the demo to hearing that lp what did you think of the production because the i think the production is some of it may be the pinnacle of hardcore lp production it's good i mean they they went to casbah same place that the thinker sync justice league record was recorded which we went there because that's where uh, social distortion did mommy's little monster so it was a good studio um you know, it's and it they they captured it. Yeah, the you know I listened to the demo again today just for fun, and uh, you know obviously the LP production is way better, but you know it was just the songs and the lyrics and the, the way that they changed things just kind of it was off to me. It didn't it just felt like it was a bit of a betrayal to the diehard fans like you. Yeah, I was like, uh, you know, there's all these new songs and there and it turned out they weren't new. <laughs> they were the same songs with different titles. Yeah, but thank God they held back. What if they hit you with uh, the next record already? Well, you, know, yeah. you, didn't, you didn't want them to trash all their songs and, and come with some new shit. <laughs> no, shit. Yeah. no but, I, think it was, I think it was just more that the lyrics changed. So I'm like singing in my head and then right, I'm singing right, the wrong right. words. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I'm going to echo Mark's sentiment. I'm taking Zoli too. Uh, the guys I juggled was Zoli and, and Pete Stahl. I thought would fill in good. Um, but... I'm going Zoli, dude. And I think Zoli's going to play it straight. He's just going to knock it out of the park, just like Dubar did. But can you imagine if the poem was about pelicans instead? <laughs> be way iller, dude. You know, instead of getting all emo, it's like a little bit of nature. What's up? Well, are you going to have the Zoli that comes in the studio wearing a Phantom of the Opera mask? I'm, I'm taking the Zoli that walked in day one, calling my brothers. That's when he's like, He's got a fully formed, you know, like the in my time seven inch and stuff is still a little raw. That call on my brother Zoli, good God, Chef's kiss. Let's do this. Fuck it. <laughs> well, what what's rad about Zoli? This, you know, we all know what Scream for Change sounds like with him singing it. So the the song, not the LP. So you already got that 
preview. That's true. I mean, he can step in and and do whatever, dude. Because also when he does band in DC on that good riddance split seven inch, oh my god, he sounds so good. Yeah. So he can come in and and also you know half those songs on Call My Brothers were like recorded with Ignite previously, you know, a half or a third. So like Zoli can step right in and sing someone else's words and knock him out of the park. I mean, if you're comparing like the uh, the Joe Nelson Asher turn to Zoli, it's like night and day. Oh my god! You know, <laughs> and I was in a band with with Nelson doing Asher turn, but yeah, I'll take the Zoli version any day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh well, I hope Joe's not listening. <laughs> Joe, Joe knows. <laughs> uh, Joe would take the Zoli version. Come on, I mean, dude. But respect because Joe wrote those lyrics, and God, those are perfect. Like Reaper, oh, great song. Lyrics. Oh my god, the bass riff in that song is just, yeah, that's like that was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> just and you, love were, like, you were getting to play that bass riff, right? Yes, I I, I love learning that. I love playing it. We oh, did yeah. it. We did that that song every night in Brazil for two weeks. So that was awesome. All right, everyone, we'll post this up on the Instagram too. You can let us know who you want to sing on Screaming for Change if Dubar gets abducted by UFO the day before. I'm taking it back to the old school because I'm an old fool. I'm taking it back to the old school because I'm an old fool. All right, old school. We're going to talk the middle class out of Vogue 7-inch. And uh, Ben, take it away. Out of Vogue. This is the first hardcore record ever made. Sorry, East Coast people who keep insisting it's pay to come by bad brains but this shit came out in 1979 and it was recorded in 1978 which is a long ass time ago for music this fucking fast um out of vogue the title track is clearly the standout to me um and when i listen to it it's still but i think by any if you put this in 1983, if you put this in 1987, any year since it's fast by the standards of that year. Like it's so, and, and here's something interesting that about middle-class is that they're arty like hardcore is like this. It's almost like there's this punk family tree. And then some, at some point at the very end of the seventies, beginning of the eighties, it splits into kind of post-punky arty type of music and then and almost like anti-arty hardcore full-on aggression testosterone music and middle class is like no we're going full full arty and full hardcore like like we're doing both so it's it's almost like it's sort of defies the evolution of punk music in a way i mean the whole thing is great but when i every time i listen to the title track, you know, it has that middle part where they're just chugging along and there's no vocals. And then he goes, one, two, three, four. And then the vocals come back in and I can never, when I'm singing along, I can never get the timing right. It's like, when, when does he say one, two, three, four? It's not obvious. There's a lot of interesting shit going on here. And this is really early for Orange County, just in general, just Orange County punk. This is like before adolescents have a record or even exists. Uh, you know, before Agent Orange, before Social Distortion, before TSOL, like, so this is a, like, this is a really important record. And it's also a really good record. And I love the cover. It's so like, man, I, 
I need to know about about this record cover. I, I don't know the story behind it, but it's compelling. <laughs> it's like two kids standing in the middle of a suburban street um, being looking uh, profoundly uncool. And I think that's how they felt as suburbanites, um, you know, in 1978, driving up to the mask and being kind of outcasts. So that's, that's my take on this. Yeah, it's got the speed and the speed holds up, but it does have like some of the early punk like zaniness in the vocals, which makes it like not 100% like what the dialed in hardcore would be when like 1980 hits. Right, it's like Devo. It's like Devo playing hardcore. Yeah, it's wild and so cool and interesting. And like you said, it's just so early that, you know, it's just such a piece of history that you should never ignore. So everyone out there, if you haven't listened to this before, you need to pull it up and check it out just because it's so early for being so fast. And and it's so good. The songs are all super short. I think there's like only maybe one song that's above like a minute or a minute 20. And uh, yeah, rules. Mark, what was your take on this? And and did this resonate with you like when you were young? Um, yeah, so I never had this record. Um, the only song I was familiar with was Out of Vogue because um, I guess probably every Sunday night I would listen to Rodney on the Rock. Um, and it was from eight to midnight. So I'd usually listen to it for a couple hours and then I'd have to go to bed because I had to get up for school or whatever. So I would record it. Um, I would you know put a, put a cassette in and, and just go to bed and you know, the next week I would listen to those last two hours or whatever that I didn't hear. And so this song was on one of those tapes that I made. Um, so I, I'm real familiar with, with the song itself. And I, I really liked it. Like you said, it's you know super fast. And, and, you know, I probably became familiar with it in 83 or 84. So it didn't, you know, I probably didn't even know that it was, you know, from 1979 and it was the first one. It was just, it fit right in with everything else I was listening to. Um, but like I agree, like you said, it's it's not really angry hardcore. It's it's more like fun hardcore, or or like yeah, Dickies. If the Dickies were singing, you know, over super fast music, that might be what you got here. Hundred percent. Um, but it's really good. And then you know, listening to I listened to the other three songs to you know kind of prep for this, and, and the other the other two of the other ones were just kind of you know similar but not as good. Um, but that situation song really stuck out to me. To me, that sounds more like kind of post-punk, you know, maybe more like a public image or a mission of Burma or something like that. Um, totally. So that's, I kind of like, I really dug that song. But Yeah, yeah their yeah. LP, their LP is full post-punk. Like the LP, it's like, well, they're done playing fast. Hmm, okay, <laughs> I got to check that out. Jump right from hardcore to post-punk. What's up? Uh, Dan, let's go to you. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this band is this, well, I mean, it's been stated twice before me. This being of the time period that this comes out is just, it's wow, you know. Um, I like the song Situations the best, but what I, what I find interesting is there's three members of the same family that are, make up the band with a dude named Mike Patton. So there's three members of the Atta family and then uh, a guy on bass called Mike Patton. And I don't think it's the Faith No More Mike Patton, but it's, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not. But um, I was just trying to leave that mystery out there for the listeners to be like, oh, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> Which brother sorry. doesn't get included on the cover? You know, if it's like three brothers, then like, why isn't there three dudes on the cover? 
<laughs> well, I love the back cover actually of of it with the um, kind of pseudo art of like different people waiting around almost like in a bus line. Um, and it just has like kind of s- clip art before clip art images of of people and and that's who the middle class is you know um pretty cool the lyrics to out of vogue are pretty interesting as well um being a very rejection song like i don't want anything to do with your society which also i think ramps up the hardcore aesthetic well, actually, the, the word aesthetic is littered throughout the song. But um, punk dabbled with, you know, fashion and all of this stuff. And what makes this solidifies it as being like the first hardcore 7-inch is it being very, very fast, very, very hardcore music. But also, lyrically, it, it's rejecting everything that kind of was going on at the time and came before. So... I think that's pretty interesting. I think it it's good and I enjoy it, but it it's it's not the kind of record to completely blow you away. But historically it is uh an epic footprint, you know, and um it it's something that is massive on the the family tree of hardcore. Yeah, it's like a total notable record, and it needs to be acknowledged and appreciated for what it is. But you're right, Daniel. I mean, it doesn't set off a movement, right? It's not like the DC bands or the Boston bands or, you know, these other like regional areas that a bunch of bands pop up with like a similar sound. It's yeah. kind of like an early island band, you know? Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting. And the it's best ahead of its, it's ahead of its time. Right, but doesn't like spark a thing. It's kind of like on the the Rotters episode that's on uh, here on 185 Miles South. Hit those archives. You know, like the Rotters, they were a early band from like the Oxnard area, but like they don't spark like the Nardcore movement. They're kind of like an early thing like by itself that doesn't spark something. But it's still unique and should be recognized for what it is, which is being very early in like a, a genre of music that's still like defining itself. You know, and they take like an early interesting stab and that's so notable and can never be taken away. Yeah, it almost jumps. Uh, well, it does jump from punk straight to hardcore, skipping that middle step um, that Zach loves uh, hearing me talk about. <laughs> 1.5, motherfuckers. What's well, up? Yeah, the fact that this was a standalone anomaly um is super interesting because there's bands that then are considered hardcore from this area that are so much more melodic and so much slower and, you know, and then fall into Ben's category. And um, this, yeah, just was a star in the sky that never like, you know, was properly mapped to an extent. And it, it's funny that the band itself didn't go down this road anymore, especially when this was the the lead song and the single of the seven inch. The other songs on the seven inch are not even, you know, going this route as much as the title track. Right. If they would have followed up with like another, even another single of like fast music, 
it might have changed the trajectory of the band. Yeah, you know? and, and the bands around them, perhaps. And it's for sure. the movement. I mean, the second single is, yeah, it's not as interesting. Um, and it doesn't have the raging uh a raging song like like out of Ogon it and it's funny they're like four full years ahead of their time and by the time everyone else has ca- caught up to them they're like we're over it we're post-punk now you know right and I think that Mark's perspective is very important you know the fact of listening to stuff in 83 and 84 and seeing that this record sounds like a contemporary I mean there you have it that's like all the validation you need that this is a special record that's so ahead of its time and and here's a funny story um Mike Patton the bass player on this record, the actual Mike Patton, not the Faith No More guy, uh, produced the Adolescence Blue album in 1981. And when, when I that was Tom Wilson, wasn't it? Uh, Tom Wilson might have been the engineer, but uh, production credit is goes to uh, Mike Patton. Uh, let's see. Yes, yes, engineer Tom Wilson, producer Mike Patton. But when I worked at um, Aaron's Records, uh, one of my my coworkers, an old punk rocker named Mikey D's, rest in peace. Um, he said that it's the guy from Faith No More produced the Adolescence album. I'm like, no, it's a different <laughs> guy with the same name. He goes, nah. And we used to always get into arguments like that. Like that would just go on like, uh-huh, nah, uh-huh, nah. And this is before we, you know, you could pull out your phone and just be like, all right, here are the two different yeah. guys. Yeah. Yeah, Ben was lucky to get him back because uh, he was the guy, the reason why Ben has never liked the addicts because he's like, do you know who this is? It's the addicts, you fucking poser. (laughs) Different dude. (laughs) All right, right on. All right, guys, this has been fun. Thanks so much for uh, doing it. And everyone, check out the Instagram. Let us know what you think. Let us know that we're wrong like we normally are. And uh, that's that. All right, cool.